Hey, y'all. Real quick before I hit play on this episode of Familypreneur for you, I want to be sure that you know that I have a brand new podcast available for you to check out. It's called Just Marketing, and you can find it on this podcast platform. Go ahead and search for Just Marketing and hit subscribe so you don't miss anything. Then come back here and listen to this episode of Familypreneur. It'll still be here waiting for you. Welcome to Familypreneur, the podcast for parent entrepreneurs, raising kidpreneurs. It's time for your weekly dose of inspiration and actionable tips to build your business and find better balance, all while strengthening your family. And now we'd like to introduce your host. She's my mom and the bomb.com, Meg Brunson. Hey there, thanks for joining me on another episode of the Familypreneur podcast. With over 20 years serving global organizations, today's guest now oversees IP portfolios spanning 150 countries that have generated over $2 billion in annual revenue, and she successfully negotiates contracts with respected enterprises like Disney, Microsoft, and Target. She helps seven- and eight-figure companies grow recurring revenue through licensing brands, software, expertise, and business content. She founded her legal and strategic services firm, Holmes at Law, in 2015 and later launched its companion podcast, Your Business Ally. Join me today in welcoming attorney Joanne Holmes. Hey, Joe, thank you so much for joining me today. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to have somebody with your legal background so that we can talk about some legal Mm -hmm. questions, which I feel like are super common in the entrepreneurial space. Um, And you focus on intellectual property. So let's, can you start by just giving us a a definition or a breakdown of what exactly IP is and what it isn't? Absolutely happy to do that. And I think it's a great place to get started because so many people don't know what IP is. And so that's okay. Literally when I started law school, I didn't know what it was, but we're all interacting with IP every day and every business has IP. So I think it will be really relatable to your audience. So there are three key types that my practice focuses on. The first are trademarks. And so that's going to be brand names, slogans, and logos. If you think Nike, you've got the word Nike, you've got just do it as a slogan, and then you've got the Nike swoosh. So all of those are trademarks. Then you've got copyrights. And in a business context, that's going to be software, the technology that's allowing us to speak to each other across the country right now. But for, let's say, a consultant or a service provider, it could also be training materials uh, or other resources that you use to deliver your intellectual capital or your knowledge or expertise. And then the third piece relates to the second around copyright. So again, copyrights are going to be things like software or training materials. But the third piece are trade secrets. And so trade secrets are going to be things like the Coca-Cola formula or the Google algorithm. Not every business is going to have trade secrets that are that famous, but every business will have, for example, pricing strategies and customer lists. And all of those things give you a competitive business advantage as long as they're kept secret. The fourth component that I don't touch on in my practice are patents. And so patents are actually protected in the Constitution, like copyrights, and they are for useful and novel inventions. So, you know, the famous example going way back would be the light bulb and a more current revolutionary example would be all the technology that goes into our iPhones. So, again, just to quickly recap, you've got trademarks, which are brands, copyrights, which are 
the expressions of ideas, sometimes like a, a book or a song, but in a business context, they're going to be training materials or software. You've got trade secrets that are the things that give you a competitive business advantage like customer lists. And then again, patents for innovative works. And I feel like I was prepared for this interview and I'm still like, oh, well, that's way more than I was expecting. So <laughs> I'm so glad you broke yes. that down because I think and we think of the first two, but we don't think of the second two necessarily. Well, and that's exactly what I say. Every business has intellectual property. At the very least, you have a brand name. So people know how to identify you from your competitors. But then usually you've got some trade secrets and you quite possibly have copyrights as well. What I love to do is help clients figure out how to monetize and license that intellectual property so you can grow even more revenue from what you're already owning in your business. And and also, I love my clients tend to be negotiating with Fortune 500s or governmental agencies. And so I love to come in and talk about how we don't leave money on the table and how we can be more strategic in the way we're negotiating around use of that IP. Ooh, so I do want to get into that. But before, I, I feel like I've got a couple more questions to kind of lead us sure. there. So I'm curious mm-hmm. how much of this stuff of those four things is protected? Is any of it protected just because just like naturally, or does all of it require some yeah. sort of filing process? Does it make sense? Mm, it definitely makes sense. And it's a great question. And the answer is the typical lawyer answer. It depends. <laughs> so uh, in the United States, there's a really simple concept called common law rights. So let's say you're a local woman entrepreneur, you open an ice cream shop and you name it, um, you know, Sundays and fun. I'm not a brand person, so I'm making this off the top of my head. Well, if there's nobody else already uh, owning a state or federal trademark registration for Sundays and fun, you can open your ice cream shop and you can start selling and you will have common law rights in your little area where your customers come from. But let's say someone goes and files a state or a federal trademark application, you'll get locked into just that space where you've had sales. So if you're a local retailer, those common law rights might be all that you need. But the reality is we live in an increasingly global society. And also, if you sell products or services, let's say on the internet, then your customers could be literally all across the country. So it gets a little bit more complex. And that's why if you do have intention to sell a product, that's not going to be limited to just one little local area. It's really worthwhile to look at at least a, a state trademark registration. And if you think you're going to sell across the country or across the world, then start looking at a trademark application, seeking a registration with the U.S. trademark office, or globally. So I manage a a portfolio of trademarks in about 150 countries around the world. There's no one universal way to own a brand everywhere. So it can get pretty complex. But for most folks, I'd say from a trademark, and again, that's going to be your brand name. You want to think about where do I want to sell? And that will give you guidance on whether you need to invest in getting a trademark registration. With copyrights, um, the example I like to give is If someone sits down at a piano and records a song, they immediately own the copyright. If someone sits down at a piano, just off the top of their head, plays that same song, but they don't record it, they do not own a copyright. 
So the, the issue under U.S. law for a copyright is it must be recorded in a fixed medium. So an idea is not protectable. But if you write down that same concept or if you record it on your iPhone, then suddenly it's in what's called a fixed medium. And then you have copyright protection. There are a number of rights that are worthwhile and really pretty cheap. I'm talking less than $100 that if you file an application with the U.S. Copyright Office, you'll get a number of benefits that are worthwhile. But that baseline is just get it recorded somewhere and then you've got copyright rights. Um, with shade secrets, the trick is that secret component. So be really careful about who you're telling things that you don't want to know. Very few people to this day, for example, know the Coca-Cola formula. Um, when you have people coming into your company, there's no way that you register at a state or federal level a trade secret, but you want to have confidentiality agreements in place. So when people join your organization, they agree they're going to treat that material as specific to the company and they're not going to share it outside of that venue. With patents, there is no sort of common law concept. You really got to file and timely file before you start making something public. You want to timely file an application with the U.S. Patent Office. So with everything except for patent, the short answer is, yes, there's a way to protect it, but the protection can be limited. With trade secrets, there is no state or federal registry. It's just a matter of protecting those things as business secrets. And I, I just have to break a little bit because I love that you use the Coca-Cola recipe as an example. We mm -hmm. are traveling the United mm -hmm. States. I'm sure most of my listeners know this already. We're traveling the U.S. and Coca-Cola is factory is in Atlanta and you can actually go there. And the yeah. recipe is like, I assume it's like written. It's in a safe that you can mm -hmm. see the safe. And my daughter set the alarm off because she got too close. So it's just one of those like fun wow. stories where I was like, she was trying to steal <laughs> the the recipe and now I'm forever going to remember that example as the trade secret but it was just kind of a fun story. I'm here in Atlanta and I was I was at the Coke Museum last summer with family in town and it is so fun to go visit. I'm sure that the the Coca-Cola formula is still safe and your your daughter was just helping them by making sure their systems work. Exactly. <laughs> she was just testing it. <laughs> so thank you for breaking that down because I think as a business owner, and I actually went through the process of trademarking, oh gosh, last year, trademarking family preneur. Mm -hmm. Um so I know that that mm -hmm. can be time consuming, it can be pricey, and it can be overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about how to find the right lawyer for getting walking mm -hmm. you through that process? So I would say uh, the first thing, stepping back to earlier in the conversation, is think about why you need protection. Again, from a business first perspective, if you're only selling locally, maybe you don't need to file a trademark application. If you are looking to sell statewide or nationwide, then it's worthwhile. In terms of how to find an attorney, uh, what I would say is to ask a few questions. So an attorney who practices in other areas of law may not necessarily be an intellectual property focused attorney. And for that matter, as I shared before, I don't do patent law because that requires a certain background. And to someone around a trademark, I would strongly suggest that you ask them, what is your experience with trademark law? And part of the reason why is because that background and that discernment of where the risks are matters. So 
One of the things I always encourage before someone invests their time or money in getting trademark protection is to have them step back and say, let's do a clearance search. So let's say, for example, you wanted to um, you know, start a computer company and you thought Apple would be a great name for it. And somehow you've been completely unaware that somebody's already using that brand. You could go file a federal trademark application. You could go spend an enormous amount of money around branding, and you are going to ultimately get a cease and desist letter. And that might be the best case scenario where you're simply told to stop. A worst case scenario is you're sued for trademark infringement. And not only do you have to pull down all that advertising, but also you could owe someone damages for creating confusion amongst consumers. So if you're going to make a substantial investment Certainly start paying for marketing materials or things that are going to be costly for your business. I believe it's worth first investing in some clearance. Um, and there are different levels of clearance. A good trademark lawyer will be able to ask me questions and help you understand how much clearance is appropriate. And then the next stage is, again, figuring out, do you need federal protection or will just state protection suffice? There are many times that folks have reached out to me and I said, I don't really think you need the investment that it'll take to get federal protection. If your business grows, maybe reconsider this. But for now, I'll tell you, I'm here in the state of Georgia. It costs $15 to get a, a, a state trademark registration. That's a lot less than a federal registration. So I would say when you're thinking about who to work with, ask them their background, ask them to, to help you understand what are the different options for how I can protect myself, and then listen to their reasoning for why they're suggesting what they're doing so that you as a business owner feel confident that it's worth the investment. And it sounds to me like, from what you just said, like the number one takeaway that everybody should have right now is to do that initial clearance search to make sure that we're not mm -hmm. accidentally, because you used Apple as an example, which made me chuckle, but there's you could accidentally be stepping on the coattails of somebody else who may, isn't as, as well known as Apple. And maybe, you know, you're not aware of them, exactly. but that doesn't mean that they're not going to come back and, and try to bite you. So just making sure exactly. that the name you've chosen is kosher. Yes. And to be honest with you, I've seen circumstances where uh, a little guy goes up against a big company and the little guy wins, you know, so there's a reason why getting that protection matters. And for that little guy, their investment in their business is every bit as important as it is to the large multinational company. So um, it's because there are so many resources that can help you figure out where the risks are before you start investing, it's really worthwhile to do that clearance. Well, now can we jump kind of back to what you talked about before is licensing and that whole process. Tell me about mm -hmm. how, how that mm -hmm. works and how you even get started because I'm struggling to wrap my head around like what I own mm -hmm. that would even be licensable? Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a great question. So let's use a consultant as an example. So uh, if, if you, for example, were able to take the podcast and then leverage that into consulting services around helping families build a family business or helping families assess what businesses have a market demand or helping them around pricing, um, or even a podcast-related service where you help people launch a podcast to affect with a target audience. 
All of those could be things that you provide one-on-one in a consulting capacity. But if you start to build out materials, let's say you wanted to do that same consulting rather than in a one-to-one capacity, but in a one-to-many, you might, for example, have an online course. And that is a license of your intellectual property or your expertise that you've reduced to a course that several people can take. And each time someone pays you to take that course, you are, in fact, monetizing your intellectual property through a limited license. Now, those folks are not going to have the right to go out and resell your course. You might then take that same intellectual property and package it up as a book. And you might sell that book. That book is going to be protected under copyright. So that's another way that you're monetizing that. Um, Another way that you could do this is think about what segments. So let's say with the book example, you might give one publisher the right to publish that work in print format in the United States. And a different publisher might have the rights to do that overseas in a digital format. So the key thing about licensing really boils down to what are the channels and what are the different ways that you want to slice that out to be able to generate revenue? One of the things I like to help my clients understand is when a new opportunity arises and uh, this asset hasn't necessarily been proven in the market, we're going to negotiate one way to sort of get your foot in the door. But then later on, when you have more notoriety and the value of your offering is better recognized, we want to have some terms in that contract or in that license that allow us to come back and renegotiate on a better footing. So let's use the example of a consultant who maybe goes in and does executive training. That actual day that they show up or series of days that they're showing up and doing the training, that's most likely going to be under a master services agreement that is for the training. But another agreement that they could have is a license that says, you can use my training materials within this parent company. I'm not giving you the license to use it with all your subsidiaries and affiliates. But if six months later you come back and say, these training materials have made such a difference, we'd love for our whole organization to be able to use it. You've got an opportunity to monetize that in a whole nother way than you had originally and bring in more revenue. And what I find is that oftentimes folks are just giving away those assets and not realizing that's another monetization channel for their intellectual property. And I feel like that example is huge because it's relatable. So many of us consultants or service-based businesses um, are familiar. Even if you're not like a professional speaker who hits the stage and all those circuits, Mm -hmm. you've Mm -hmm. given presentations, maybe at a local library or to Mm -hmm. a local BNI group or networking group. And mm-hmm. so it sounds like that presentation itself is something you can negotiate. You can get paid for that, or you can do yeah. that for free. Those are, those are your options and there's pros and cons, but yeah. then it's like recording it and how to leverage that recording. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of ways to expand on that. Exactly. And even within that license, following the example that you just shared around the recording, you might give that client a limited right for one year to uh, show that recording again within their organization. But then you might keep the rights to take that same recording and put it within your online course. So then you've got two different streams of revenue coming from that same intellectual property. And just thinking through what are the ways that you want to leverage what you create so that you can be mindful. And as you say, you might choose to do that presentation for free 
Whereas your thinking is down the line, they're going to come back to me and want me to develop curriculum that they're going to want to use across the country. And that's the way I'm going to monetize this asset. So it's about being thoughtful around what are you trying to achieve, what works for your client, and how to organize that for your protection so that you're not losing out on those revenue opportunities. And all of that's going to have to be in the contract, which is really where you come in to make sure T's are crossed and I's are dotted, right? Well, yes. And there's also an education component. So one of the things about certain types of intellectual property, especially copyright, is that it doesn't necessarily make sense. So let's say I go to a grocery store and buy a loaf of bread. I can go home and I can make a sandwich. I can make some French toast. I can make bread pudding. I can do whatever I want. I bought the bread and I can use it. What people oftentimes don't know, because it might not seem to follow baseline logic with copyright is, let's say you hire someone to create your website. The person who created the structure of your website owns the copyright in that work. The person who wrote the copy, the person who took the photos of you, all of those people own the copyright those works. I'm a photographer and I have paid the web developer, so I own all of these assets. That's not correct. At best, you have a limited license. So let's say you want to take that photo and use it outside of the website context. You may very well need to go back to that photographer and ask for permission to use it in another way. Or if you want to take that copy from your website and start using it in brochures, if you didn't write that copy, you may need to go back to that copywriter and ask for a license to use it in a new way. So going back to our consulting example, Oftentimes, as I'm sure you well know, with professional service providers, there's so much knowledge they contain from having served for so long that they just see it as a part of the service. Whereas those different segments of delivery and the intellectual property that supports that delivery knowledge, actually, each of those have value in and of themselves. So I see it as my responsibility to say, for example, to that consulting client, Make sure you're educating your client that when you come in, the presentation is one facet of your compensation. If they want the recording under copyright law, they've got to get your permission to be able to redistribute that or use that again or share that with another component of maybe their parent company structure. Just making sure that my client has the information around those different revenue streams empowers them to go advocate for that value and that additional compensation. And I can see both sides, how as the, your client, you know, as the the business owner, how you wouldn't even know what to, what to advocate for. And then also in the same respect as a business owner, how you may not even know how you're violating somebody else's and totally not maliciously. Like, I don't think that very many of us are like out to get other entrepreneurs. Like we're not. But like when you were talking about that, like it had me thinking about all of the the copy I've paid for, the photos I've paid for, the video I've paid for. And I'd have to go back, honestly, and look at the agreements because I'm not even sure what the terms were for most of the stuff that's on my website. And that's, it's not malicious. It's, it's just ignorance. And it's, you know, it's not my everyday thing. So it's kind of scary and eye-opening. Well, for most folks. It's not there every day. And so that's why I really appreciate having the chance to have conversations like this, because I 100% agree. Most people are not trying to be malicious or take something from someone else. And if they can get this information on the front end, they can do simple things to protect themselves. 
Um, the other thing I would really encourage people to do, again, my clients tend to be in the seven and eight figure range, and they're providing services and products to Fortune 500s or governmental agencies. So even for people who are attorneys, quite often, they're not experts in intellectual property law. So I will be representing my client and a Fortune 500 company might say, you've got to use our contract. I'm reviewing the contract and realizing they're asking for everything but the kitchen sink. And my clients are being asked essentially to turn over core assets of their business just to have the opportunity to do business with this you know, behemoth enterprise level company. And sometimes it's a simple matter of, of politely pushing back and saying, there are some terms here where the very reasons you're coming and asking us to service you, you want us to give those core assets away to you. That's not necessary. We can revise this so that you have that license that you will need to be able to use everything you're paying for. But at the same time, we're not giving away from my client's perspective, the things they've worked so hard to build up in their business. And one of the reasons this is so important is because if you are growing a business and your ambition is to you know, continue to scale, at some point you might be looking at bringing in investors or at some point you might be looking to exit and sell. And a core part of evaluating the value of a business is going to be what are your intellectual property assets? And if contract after contract, you've been giving those assets away and hoping nobody ever realizes that you've given them away, you're in a tough position when it's time to try to get that investor support or to sell the business because you have inadvertently given away what you work to build. And I think it could be easy for an entrepreneur, uh, you know, the, the little guy, if you will, who wants to work with the big guy yeah. to not want to ruffle feathers when they, you know, mm-hmm. when you get served this contract and you feel like you don't really have a choice but to sign it and mm-hmm. work together. And then you're, you know, putting yourself in that poor situation going forward. Well, I would say I've been encouraged. I've seen some contracts where the little guy is at least well enough aware to look at that section about intellectual property and push back and say, let me give your audience a a quick tip that I try to tell as often as I can. Watch out for the words work for hire. Because what that essentially means is, let's say in a copyright context, let's say you go to teach a corporate client in a seminar, and then there's work for hire language. That means what they're seeking from you is everything you present, the collateral materials, everything that went with the work that they engaged you for, they then own. Now imagine you use, you tweak it, but you use those same materials to go into a a myriad of corporations and do your presentations. You've given away the core assets that you use to do business. So at the very least, I would encourage people to look out for that term work for hire. And if you're seeing that in your contract, push back. Now, I'm not absolutely 100% against work for hire, but if you're going to give away something lock, stock and barrel, make sure you're negotiating compensation that's worth it. Don't inadvertently give that away just because you didn't know what that term meant. Otherwise, if you're not being compensated appropriately for work for higher terms where you're saying, I'm giving you everything, then push back and say, I really think we should reconsider this. I want you to have what you need so that when I show up and perform really well for you at your organization, you get the value that you paid for, but you don't need to own my company's core assets to do that. So maybe we should have a conversation about some sort of license instead of work for hire. 
I have loved this explanation because I feel like I was perceiving something totally different when we started and I was getting like hung up on, on that concept. So for me at least, and hopefully for our listeners, it's, that's been made very clear how, you know, everything that we do has some element of IP tied to it, whether it's a trade secret or a trademark or whatever, and the different ways that we can break those down and then monetize them. I'd love to know, you know, we talked a lot about your role too, but how can our listeners specifically work with you? Sure. So, uh, my focus and the thing that after 20 years practicing law really lights me up is just the kind of conversation we just had, which is around what IP assets do you have? How are you negotiating your contracts to make sure you're getting the most value from them now? And what new revenue streams can we go pursue so you get even more value from the IP that you already own? So the best way to reach out to me, I'm on LinkedIn. My name is Joanne, J-O-A-N-N, Holmes. And the website is Holmes at Law. That's H-O-L-M-E-S-A-T-L-A-W. All of our contact information is the top of every page. And I also have a podcast where I talk a lot about intellectual property and licensing. And the podcast is called Your Business Ally. So feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn or through the website. And my team and I would love to have a conversation about how we can help small businesses really more so in the seven, eight figure. But I think it's important to have a good reference point. So even if I'm not the right lawyer for you, I'm happy to point folks in the direction of attorneys who would support them at whatever level they're at. Thank you so much. I feel like, like I said, this is something that I think a lot of people could be making very expensive mistakes around. So having some of this knowledge out there is going to be hugely helpful. I certainly appreciate the chance to talk to folks. I know IP can be intimidating, but the more I talk to people, they they sort of relax their shoulders and say, oh, that's not that hard, Joe. And that's what I'm trying to get to. <laughs> that's it for today's episode of the Familypreneur Podcast. You will find all of the links mentioned in this week's episode and the show notes at megbrunson.com slash podcast. Until next week, I'll see you over in the Familypreneur community. Bye for now. Don't miss my mom's next episode. Bye.